In this episode, we continue to discuss the career of John Williams. Enjoy! Okay, and hello there, and we are back, and we're talking about our John Williams Part 4, and we're starting from our year of our Lord, 1997, and the song... uh, from that, we're going to listen to is Amistad. And for those who don't know the movie Amistad, here's a little bit of background on the movie. In 1839, the slave ship Amistad set sail from Cuba to America. During the long trip, Cinque, the Jivan Hunsu, leads the slaves in an unprecedented uprising. They are then held prisoner in Connecticut, and their release becomes the subject of a heated debate. Freed slave Theodore Johnson, Jodson, uh, by uh, Morgan Freeman, wants Sink and the others exonerated and recruits properly lawyer Roger Baldwin, Matthew McConaughey to help his case. Eventually, John Quincy Adams, Anthony Hopkins, also becomes an ally. So guys, uh, the song that we're going to talk about today is called Dry Your Tears, Africa. Um, one of my favorite pieces of his, and, and Hunter... Uh, right before we started recording this section, had a really great thing to say about the choir aspect and how it really made a really big impact in his career. So I think, in a way, the choral writing in this is just as good as it is later in his career when we talk about some Star Wars stuff. Um, but first of all, guys, I love this piece because it's a celebration. It's just mm-hmm. it's it's so beautiful. It's so lovely. I'll start it off with that. I'm going to toss it over to Mary. Mary, what do you think? So um, I actually never did watch Honest Odd, but um, for some reason I came across the soundtrack when I was in high school. Um, and maybe I, maybe I got reference in a class or something. But um, the this particular track was um, one thing that really stuck out to me just for like, I had to go and look up who did the music because I didn't know it was a John Williams movie when I watched it. And I heard it and I was like, really? It really surprised me that this was John Williams. And so the particular track that you picked is, um, I mean, it's more uh, of this evocative John Williams uh, trademark that we see. Uh, he knows how to write melodies that um, bloom in and out of each other with uh, increasingly unique color. Um and so I think that um, emotionally, um, the longer that we watch him work, um, it's not that the film technique gets any better because effects do get better over the years. But like, mm-hmm. I think that he has learned to reach, you know, even deeper sometimes uh, with how he, um, I, I just, his melodies always seem to be beautifully woven in a way that seems like it was right, that it was to sit that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, Um, I think so. And I wish that there was some theory to it because I'm sure if we were to go through and score study every piece he's done, we would find some similarities and definitely in like a lot of his big series that we see, um, like the Star Wars and the Indiana Jones. There's such continuity in what he does, uh, the Harry Potter scores, um, spinoff series. Like, um, 
he knows how to wrap in on himself enough. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's just, it's really interesting to see uh, a score like Amistad work because of the voice, because I think the way he uses strings here is different than a lot of movies we've seen so far too. And we'll see that throughout the rest of the list. Right. And I think what's interesting, Hunter, is Mary brought it up very nicely, which is the Americana feel. Mm-hmm. And we yep. can really connect that to Copeland um, and yep, maybe definitely. a little bit and not to get too specific with, with French music, but we can talk about Ravel a little bit because of how Ravel was just so versatile with using all different kinds of instruments. But in this case, when we talk about Ravel. We talk about how John Williams was able to use all these different kinds of um instruments and create something just so brilliantly unique and different because this is something we've really haven't heard in a mm-hmm. while and mary's right this is a sound we haven't really heard yet but we want to hear more of and he's really helped develop that through through history and his career mm-hmm. yeah your thoughts yeah i think for him it was sort of a, a stepping off point because particularly the sound he's going for with this track is uh, he's I think he's trying to connect the two worlds in the movie right they're coming Mm. from Cuba right but they are African slaves so they were obviously from Africa and obviously the the chanting in it the the celebratory uh, vocals that you hear are very you know they harken back to the African root music that I assume that he's trying to uh, not play to but he's trying to evoke Mm. um and then you do have this Americana sound because one, that's his natural sound. You know, he he uh, so much contributed to the Americana sound after Copeland. Uh, but also, they're going to America, right? So right. because they're right. going from Cuba to America, so now you've got their their origins, which are Africa, going to America. So now he's putting both of those together to give this very unique sound to it. Which actually, if you think about the music that was coming out around the time he wrote this, right? It was around the turn of the century. And a lot, I, 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 the one that stands out most to me is um, a movie called Dinosaur, which was James mm-hmm. Newton Howard. Yeah. Um, and it was the first CGI animated movie. Um, mm-hmm. And it has a very similar sound to it. And I don't know if that's because of, of location. I mean, you don't, you don't really know where it takes place specifically, but... Um, the, the use of choir, the use of rhythm, particularly the drums, I, I feel like there's a lot of similarities. So William's uh, style here, because this movie was so big, I feel like sparked a lot of people to take that same sound and want to run with it. Right, right. And in a way, we get that next step of, like you said, um, very appropriate to the setting. It shows that John did his research. Mm-hmm. And it comes out to prove that he is really able to write in this fashion. And like Mary said, play into two different types of genres of music, choral and orchestral very well. Right. And it just, one of my favorite things is just, um, how do you describe human triumph? Mm-hmm. I think he does it really well here. And he really defines the sound with just kinds of celebratory fanfare-ish licks in the the brass but also like very swelling kind of like um americana sounds in the strings so mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of interesting um i don't really have much to say about that just because this is just so specific to a specific time in the movie um 
but are you guys ready to move on to the next one? Indeed. Okay. So the next one we're going to talk about is Saving Private Ryan, uh, released in 1998. And for those who don't know the movie, Captain John Miller, Tom Hanks, takes his men behind enemy lines to find Private James Ryan, whose three brothers have been killed in combat, surrounded by the brutal realities of war. While searching for Ryan, each man embarks upon a personal journey and discovers their own strength to triumph over uncertainty, future with honor, decency, and courage. Um, you know, it really takes someone really special to just really get a moment, really understand it, really see it. And it's so hard for uh, composers to get credit to write for movies based on history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they can get, they can get judged pretty harshly, but I, in a way it's, it's kind of perfect which is which is a really hard word to say when you when you talk about composition because there, there's so many things that could go wrong, so many different things. You might have an extra fifth movement, Tchaikovsky, um, that goes really into uh, how you really imagine something to go. So for me, like we talked about with the last piece with the choir adding into orchestra, but but it's not but but this piece, um, Hymn to the Fallen. It's just so focused and just so peaceful, and it's not super loud. I mean, mm-hmm. it gets it gets maybe to like a mezzo forte, forte ish. We don't want to say too loud, but it's it's so peaceful and it's just so loving and so reverent. Um, and the thing I like about it the most is it just show it showcases bravery, it showcases sincerity, it showcases worth, and it's just it's it's so beautiful, and you know. I like to use the phrase when words fail, music truly talks to us. Sorry, uh, speaks to us. Hmm. Um, so in that way, it just it really echoes the fact that when we listen to something like this, we're not necessarily like we're also lamenting. We're also but in a in a in a good way. We're not feeling, oh, we're really sad about what had happened in World War II, but we're also saying this is what happened and we're really lucky for it, you know? So I'll throw it over to you guys. What do you guys think? Um, I'm Mary, you want to take it first? I'm trying to think of the word that this all makes me think of. Um, I know that like it's synonymous with the bittersweetness that you get. Mm-hmm. Yes. Having him wrapped in um, like sentimental weight. Um, I can't remember where I saw it. But anyways, uh, I think that Saving Private Ryan Private Ryan um, is definitely, you know, a caricature almost, um, like the extremes that you can truly um, evoke of this idea of triumph uh, that's also quite militaristic, and uh, you could go as far as to say legal, especially in terms of how he works with the trumpet for the piece. Um, but also this lamenting aspect that Sean brought up. Um, it has like a a shade to it um even in its brightest moments like it either is short-lived with some like melancholy minor sound next or you know it's it's quickly tainted but not too far off the mark to you know completely distract from what happened so i think a lot of times when you know uh in music school when you take classes to do all of this 
um, your final test is normally to have people actually read what you wrote. So mm -hmm. in my situation, you know, a lot of people can manage uh, like big ideas well, but it's transitions that really can't or don't always seem like you might think when you put it on paper, like you might get, okay, this is obviously like something. And then all of a sudden it's a completely different color. Um, or, uh, the voices don't make sense as they pass from one scene to another. And so you get a completely different effect, you know, six bars into the piece. And one thing that John Williams always manages to do, like you see this in a lot of his, um, like, credit scores um, or like full suites of pieces but um i think you know the way he can walk in and out of things while still staying within the same sphere which him to the fallen is a perfect example of that mm. um and there's three or four on this list uh, that all have this um it's not accessible but it, it's like no matter which way you turn the rubik's cube it's still going to put something out well mm -hmm. and, relevant <laughs> so um if, if you guys haven't watched saving private ryan um yes it can be better if you actually watch it but this is one of the few pieces <laughs> often performed like outside of the movie like you mm -hmm. see you know that that time of year when people do pops concerts it's popular to do it but saving private ryan is relevant to a lot of different things which wouldn't necessarily if it weren't connected to a movie, I think we'd still see that kind of popularity with it because it's just good music and it's written in a way that says something whole and it's easily communicated. It's more of the same kind of like moneymaker John Williams that we keep talking about. And Hunter, what an homage to Fallen Soldiers this piece is. Yes, it is indeed. I mean, I think that this movie in general, I think, tends to be a, a well-received movie by people who uh, have been affiliated with war, in war. Um, I think it does a good job of honoring uh, both the bravery of the war, but also the, you know, uh, not necessarily exposing, but like showcasing just the brutality of it in general. And I think people can appreciate that. And, you know, like Mary was saying, there's a bittersweetness to the song itself, right? Because you honor... Um, you honor these people who who fought and who uh, gave their lives, right? But at the same time, there's that that bitterness to it. Like, you know, did they have to die, right? Like, so it's it's that balance. The age-old question, like, you know, war is, is war necessary? Yes or no? Some people say yes. Some people say no. It, you know, it, it's I think one of those things that the movie is ambiguous enough that touches everybody. And the song itself, I think, does a good job of it's not overly grand. I mean, it's like it's you're, I mean, it, it is grand, but it's not like, you know, you're, you're doing uh, the throne room scene from Star Wars at the end where it's, you know, triumphant and happy. So I think that the, the so there's a somberness to it that does uh, touch people for that reason. And also, I think that talking back to the actual sound of the piece itself very brass right which is you know, is always associated with military and very americana like it it is the the quintessential americana sound in this piece i mean it has that very um i don't even know how you would describe it i did it, i other than the very copelandy sound 
right. that Williams right. took in the next, uh, next right. half of the century. Right. You know, it's also interesting is, I think we talked about this at the beginning of our journey with uh, John Williams Hunter, which was mm -hmm. how he really wasn't that great of expressing emotion in music, just because we get mm -hmm. like, we get the feeling of rush and panic and stuff like that. But something that's really important is dual emotions in music, such yeah. as the last two that we just talked about with Amistad and now with Saving Private Ryan, because he's able to then cover both emotions, not just both, but a, a variety of different emotions um, in his music. And I know a lot of people say, oh, like he really does bring up a lot of nostalgia. Yeah, a lot in his earlier music, like when he started playing for Star Wars and stuff like that. But I really think the emotional core of his music really starts to speak now at the turn of the century. Um, yeah. In his career. So I'm glad that we're talking about that. But we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about some Harry Potter. But first, we're going to talk about one of our favorites. Uh, we're going to talk about some Star Wars. Very exciting stuff to talk about because we're going to hit Phantom Menace. But if you like these podcasts, please think about subscribing. And if you would like to contribute to our podcast, please consider going to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast again. It is time for a break, and we'll be back with some John Williams and his early 2000s. So stay with us. And after that, we are done with our uh, fourth John Williams installment. Thanks for listening, guys. And of course, thank you to John Williams, ever the mastermind. Um, truly, there is no one better. Uh, especially in film scoring, but um, the deeper that we get into this stuff, the more I'm convinced. So, um, anyways, let's just recap for a little bit. Um, when we listen to John Williams' music, what is one of our biggest takeaways? You want to take this one first? Yeah, I'll go first real quick. Yeah, and I, th I, think, I think what's interesting is the way his harmonic language has changed throughout his entire career. We're at the really the apex of his career where he's starting to write some really memorable music. And um, going forward into actually today where he's writing some really great stuff still and hopefully maybe by the by the next point we talk about John Williams part five, we'll be able to maybe talk about some Kenobi mm -hmm. uh, music, which would be really exciting. So Hunter, take it away. Yeah, I think the... Uh... You know, like any composer, his his style has developed, and this is something we've talked about with him before, which is that his style has changed. In that, you know, I think the the focus of whatever sound he's going for changes. I think he sometimes, in his early career, he was looking for more brass sound, and then I think he looked into more of a a string sound, and then towards the the turn of the century, I think he started experimenting with some other sounds, like using choir as a as a focal point, and um, a lot of different rhythms, like almost stylistically different. You know what I mean? Which we've talked about with some of the pieces, particularly in this round. So I think it's it's a composer can keep their sound while still uh, keep their signature while changing the vehicle by which their signature is delivered it's like we pay you the big bucks my man. <laughs> that, was, that was perfect mary yeah and um uh kind of like how hunter was saying um one of the tracks that struck me the most on the soundtrack other than you know harry potter mm -hmm. uh, 
was uh, Catch Me If You Can because he really does just change um, his orchestration and a lot of the, um, I'm throw a Sean word in, aesthetic uh, <laughs> of how he generally writes his early scores are really like bombastic for the most part and then um, uh, as we go on and on you see his voice evolve and so I think it's really interesting to see it used in so many different ways during this one decade um, but anyways I, I also I mean he's done so much else that we haven't even touched outside of film scoring um, and I just I can't get enough of John Williams at this point. We have a horn concerto, but it's it's really hard. <laughs> I, I bet. <laughs> you know what's interesting, and we'll have to do a classical music one with him as well, and uh, we will continue and finish off uh, John Williams' career and get into the 2020s. Um, but uh, more Joe Hisashi and a promised classical repertoire with him coming up next after that as well. And who has the next? Oh, with, sorry, with that. Yes, <laughs> I suppose that's my cue. I'm ready for my close-up, <laughs> Mr. DeMille. Um, with that, my name is Hunter Sagona. I'm Mary Haddix. Now, I'm Sean Ramkunis, and keep listening to what you love. <laughs>